Welcome back to another episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast, my friends. We talk with Ryan about a number of different interesting things this week, like his evolving understanding of how to train followers in evangelism, from his days in InterVarsity to his work now as our lead pastor here at NCCC. We talk about the danger of performance culture, what that poses to our identity, and we spend a lot of time unpacking the idea of offense, the offense that Jesus offers, it seems, to his hometown, and some of the curious things that unfold there, like, why can't Jesus perform miracles in his hometown? And we talk about the endless knowability of God, wonder as the antidote to offense, and perhaps a Christian duty, and then the holistic nature of Christian ministry, the importance of social healing, and the groundbreaking nature of discipleship following Jesus. Friends, it's a rich conversation this week, and as always, we hope that these conversations inspire, challenge, and deepen your faith and affection for God and for the scriptures. So, without further ado, another episode of Just Follow Jesus. Ryan, we're back. It's another Monday. So excited. (laughs) Monday after Monday. I look forward to it. You know, it is... It's odd um, because this is at the very end of a Monday, and I know Mondays are packed for you. I mean, they're packed for all of us. We're back in the saddle, and it's so easy for us to oftentimes have a case of the Mondays. <laughs> the Monday moods. Uh-huh. Uh, I look forward to it. This is such a great way for me to unwind from the message, actually. Yeah. I love it. It's... um. It helps me unwind, maybe get in some of the things that we didn't get to cover. Mm-hmm. I guess 30 minutes can't cover it all. But um, also, yeah, I just it, in processing, I, I almost get to process out loud with you, with everybody listening. Mm-hmm. Well, one, and, you know, to the processing point, uh, we were just having a conversation a little bit earlier about two points I'd love for you to kind of loop people in on and to reflect a little bit more. And the first one is obviously evangelism is a, is a kind of a key theme in this passage. You know, you really rooted us in verse 7 here in Mark chapter 6 and kind of those three movements um, of being called and of being sent and of being gifted. And um, we were talking about how you come from this background with inner varsity where a huge part of your ministry was training and equipping college students to to actually be effective evangelists in what is not an easy context. I mean, the university setting lends itself in a lot of ways because people are learning and curious and they've got new freedoms and everything. Uh, but obviously, I mean, especially within the, you know, the university system that you were working in, it's not like it's a, a, a faith context. Um, but now you shift here to North coast and you're a lead pastor for us of a multi-generational church. And, um, and we are evangelical, uh, loosely, you know, we're, and we're obviously Calvary Chapel explicitly, but so evangelism is one of our values. And you just were talking about how your perspective pastorally about evangelism and about encouraging or inviting or challenging us as a church to step out into that has shifted a little bit. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk about how just thinking about and walking with young families in particular has changed or challenged some of your perspective on evangelism. And then also, I think the other thing is that you identified for me in our pre-conversation that this section of Mark is actually pretty pivotal because it marks a gear shift in the intensity of 
discipleship. That's right. Where we start seeing Jesus um, move his methodology in the way that he is engaging with the disciples and execute and how they are kind of a faith community begin to execute ministry. So long, awfully long-winded uh, set up there. But those two things, if you could reflect on some of those, just from a pastoral perspective. It's a good setup. I The first is I, it's actually been really hard to talk about evangelism in this context as a pastor with people at all kinds of different stages of life. Certainly the complexity of people's sort of the topography of their life context is so different than working with a more homogenized environment, like with college students, college students had their pressure points, the fear of rejection, the fear of offending friends. And I think that's universal. I think everybody feels that throughout all life. Some personalities more than others, no doubt. Some personalities are like, just say it. But uh, I think the majority of us carry those concerns our whole life. It's just the, um, the context is really different. And that's where I've even had some moments where what used to feel a, my sweet spot talking about evangelism and being sent out into our relationships with the good news of Jesus. I really feel first this weird feeling. It's odd. Like it, sometimes it feels so crazy impractical given all the demands on people, particularly people who are in that young family category. I mean, they arguably they, they could be the people at the busiest stage of life. Mm-hmm. They are growing in responsibility in their careers. They're married. They got kids. Or And if, even if they're not married, they're a single parent, a single mom or a single dad. You've got your kids and your job and you're just so busy. And then that's how do you even make room to think about anybody outside <laughs> of that immediate mm-hmm. sphere? It's got like this, it's like a gravity well that just like pulls you in, you know, mm-hmm. and then. There is the unique challenges of talking about your faith with a friend, which is the case for the general college student, right? Unless they're talking to their professor versus like someone trying to think about how to apply that call, that sentness in their workplace. It's a level of nuance that, to be frank, I, I it's just not coming up in the messages. Mm-hmm. And I wish that it did. And if you go, well, why doesn't it? Uh, because I'm having a hard time knowing how to drop just the right comments that helps people without it feeling like it becomes all about that. Mm-hmm. With college students, I was so versed in doing that with people, helping people in that environment. I could just, I knew that the few things I needed to say to give them a starting point. Mm. Um, so I, man, I really appreciate the difficulty, the challenge that people feel. And it's causing me right now at this stage constantly think about it and want to talk to people about it when I'm out in the piazza and asking people what it's like for them without trying to trigger a feeling of like, Oh, am I trying to measure up to pastor right now? Cause he's asking me, yeah, I just yeah. am trying to learn totally what people are going through. What are their challenges? What are their opportunities? Mm-hmm. I think there are opportunities and uh, like opportunities like with play dates and you, those parents, your friends with, or going to my kids soccer, their sports is a huge opportunity. You're sitting on the sideline with idle time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an opportunity for conversation with people. There are opportunities. Um, it's just, I'm still learning how to like shepherd people into those opportunities and to identify them from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I feel it. I feel it. Well, and that doesn't, I mean, we've got four generations. You're regularly preaching to th- at least three generations on a, any given Sunday. And you named kind of two distinct life phases, but then we also have people who are in the third, the, the final third of life, you know, um, 
and their set of challenges with regard to responding to that call that is a lifelong call uh, is unique as well. So I don't envy the task that you have. Yeah. In terms well, of- <laughs> <laughs> thanks. You know, if I could just say one thing to our listeners real quick is that I really resonate and understand the pressure that people might feel if they want to embrace that sentness by Jesus, but are like, gosh, how do I make room for it in my life right now? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, and I'm like with my kids, and I'm trying to figure that out. Or I'm like, a, I'm like, I'm a parent, but I have a job. Sometimes just the pressure, the time pressure of just the existing relationships, it's hard to know. How do I make time just to cultivate the kind of relationship I would need to cultivate to be able to talk about Jesus to a non-Christian mm-hmm. in my work environment or my neighbor? It's not easy. It doesn't mean we're not called to it. So I want to say that. It doesn't mean we're not called to it. But I personally, I, in my own life, feel the challenge mm-hmm. to find time to have those conversations with people. I'm experiencing it more mm-hmm. than I ever did when I was younger. I'm feeling it. So I appreciate that. I hope no one ever feels like pressured. I hope they feel invitation and they feel like a fire being lit in them. Yeah. Versus some standard they got to measure up to, or they're not a, a good Christian, but I hope they feel conviction, which mm-hmm. I think is always um, always has a grace element. I mm-hmm. hope they feel people feel conviction and hope they feel invitation and curiosity. How can I, Lord, follow you in this way? Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing I'm sure that we'll probably get to it in the next chunk of scripture that we look at, but invitation, because one thing that if you if you aren't in the regular practice of sharing your faith with people, um, it's really easy to kind of be governed by, yeah, I don't know, spirit of fear or of cynicism um, or just, yeah, I don't know, a, a lack of like, like, why would that, why, why would it work? This is going to be awkward. It's just going to be, ugh, you know, um, I'm afraid I'll offend them. But the reality is that as we see that from the disciples, when they get sent out and they um, participate with Jesus in the ministry that he's been doing and they're, you know, they executed kind of, with his delegated authority, but on their own, and they see results, it's incredibly enlivening to them. It's, yeah. it's, it's exciting, and because you see God show up and move in people's lives and in your life. You experience uh, his being filled with his grace and his power to be able to, to minister to people. Because while you can have all these great uh, strategies um, mm. and kind of have these preloaded arguments or, or things that you might think would be helpful, in my experience... Oftentimes, when you do take that step of faith and you are sharing your faith, you're sharing the love of God or the gospel with somebody, it's like something organic happens in the moment that's really beautiful and exciting. And to me, is like, oh my goodness, I'm this is God here with me. You know, like I'm not, I'm not just coming up with this on my own. Is that, yeah, are, are you tracking well with me? Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's an invitation to something exciting and terrifying. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, because yeah. you can't get rejected, and Jesus did. We'll talk about that later. That's right. Well, hey, gear shift, discipleship. I mean, um, I don't know if we want to address this here, but you you mentioned it ahead of time, and it it brought back to my mind something that I heard Mark say often, and that I think I've heard you repeat. And we talked about it with the with the church when we were 
mapping the transition um, where Mark kind of laid out for us, hey, philosophy of discipleship, it's this, it's this four-stage process of, hey, I do, you watch, I do, you help, you do, I help, you do, I watch. And this passage seems to identify for us a shift from maybe that first, first phase of Jesus' ministry to a second where the disciples are being sent out to that's do. That's a great reference. Yeah, that's good. I wish I'd thought of that. Well, but that's a perfect I just application. Stole it from Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's a perfect application um, of that paradigm. It, it really is. It's shifting gears into you do I help. Mm-hmm. And I guess well, let's let's save that actually because we're going to spend some time unpacking that a little bit later on. So may we dive a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that you did talk about and some of the stuff that you didn't get to talk about. Yeah. Um, you spent some time dwelling on the importance of identity and you walked us through a couple of different points where Mark grounds, um, Jesus identity, particularly, you know, at his baptism before his ministry is inaugurated where God says, Hey, this is my son who I'm in whom I'm well pleased. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about the importance of identity? Why is identity and being sure of our own or being sure of Jesus's so crucial to uh, the next part, the being sent? Well, I did say it there, and I'll, it's, it always bears repeating because of our culture. Our culture is a performance culture. And it's not that performing is, is a bad thing in itself. It's the way that we use it to validate our identity and to substitute for the way it should be, it should be that what we do over is the overflow of who we are versus we do things to try to prove who we are. And I think when that happens, uh, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, I think when we talk about being sent out to serve God, that the temptation is to import our culture's view of performance into that moment. Mm-hmm. And I think we now have to go out and share the gospel to prove that we're good Christians, to prove that we're worthy of being loved by God. And to prove to others, in worst case scenario, the worst case is to prove to the non-Christian that we are real true Christians. Mm. And I think that just turns them into a project. Versus when our identity is rooted in the Father's love, uh, it's what allows us to then enter into Jesus's mission and not turn people into projects, but but to carry Jesus's passion with us into those interactions. So I, um, I think whenever we talk about evangelism or mission of any sort, I think it always had, it always needs to be repeated that this is not about proving to ourselves or to anyone else or to God. This ought to be the overflow of God's love in our life. I don't think you get, and I don't think it's like a linear thing. I think it's more cyclical. Mm. I think we, or we we grow as we grow in God our identity in Christ we mature in our ability to be um you know effective witnesses with people and i think as we grow in our witness um it reveals the places that we need to ground our identity even more deeply in our identity in Christ mm-hmm. and so i think it's not like okay get to perfection you know get get your identity formation perfect and then go out. Yeah. I think it's happening in tandem. Mm-hmm. That's probably worth saying because I didn't make that point and then people could overly structure it. 
Yeah. Well, and that's something that this text in general is, I know one of the commentators um, that I looked at was, highlighted just what a dumb idea it was to send the disciples out in many ways, because they're, they're, they're only partially formed. They're still rough little lumps of clay when it comes to their identity as disciples. I mean, they'd largely been antagonistic towards Jesus or, um, or, or misunderstood him or have kind of gotten in the way in, in a lot of different... Well, and that's going to be even more explicit in the future. Hmm. We are going to just see it. It's painful to watch, but that's, a, that's very true. But I, I, I just really liked that you named for us that it, it's not this linear thing. The cyclical nature of it actually gives us all great freedom to say, well, hey, um, we're all beginners and we're all um, in process and there's room and space with God to go out to, tr- to try, um, to fall short, to learn, you know, okay, maybe this doesn't work, that doesn't work. And as you said, find those places in us that inevitably will be exposed where God is wanting to come and say, oh, hey, okay, cool. This defeat or this success exposes this part of your heart that I, I, want, to, I want to inhabit more fully with my love. It was somewhat illustrated in that story I shared about that couple that uh, God had sent me to mm-hmm. in my condo complex, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, I was not fully formed, <laughs> nor am I now. But there, my prejudices were coming out, but they were coming out in the context of being sent to that couple. Mm-hmm. And and what God did in that was drew me back to him and uh, was able to, to reveal himself to me and reveal my heart the, and the thoughts that I had, the react, response I was having towards them, the posture I was having towards them that wasn't mature, mm-hmm. spiritually mature, and to lead me to repent and to grow and become more like him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's definitely, but it has to be an important part because it's very easy for us in our culture today to just jump right to action, right to performance, right to results. And that's why I think we see so many leaders in both the secular and in the Christian world fall mm. from grace. I think it's where performance and giftedness and results just outpace and outstrip uh, character. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always ends in disaster. Tragic and well said. Well, can we talk about offense? Please. I didn't get to really dwell on that. I it's know. So and it's so... And the amazement, the idea that... I know. <laughs> the joke that I am amazing to Jesus. <laughs> I amaze him with my lack of faith. Yeah. Yes, there is. There's uh, there's two different types of amazement that we see happen in this passage, and yes. I love I love um, yeah that people got offended by Jesus, and I, I want us to dwell here for a second for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because I know you didn't get a chance to unpack it a bunch, but also because this language of offense is something that we hear in our culture a lot. I mean, currently, the last you know five years in particular, I'd probably say. Um, it feels like that's all that people are talking about all the time is, well, this side or that view or belief system is a total offense to my perception of truth. And this leads to this endless cycle of conflict, you know? And so that's, it's nothing new, obviously we're seeing this happen in the text in front of us, but, um, so offense, Greek, 
scandalon. That's the noun form, verb form. What is that? Uh, Scandalasian. Yeah. Stumbling block or causing to stumble. So, man, why why did they take such offense to Jesus when he comes home? Let's read it. Isn't yeah. this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Well, it's interesting too, right? Like you learn a lot about Jesus just before we even get to the offense part. We just learn a lot about Jesus's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you learn that uh, there's no mention of Joseph, so it's Jesus, and he's got siblings. He's got a, he's got we don't know how many sisters, and uh, and so he's got a big family. Which, by the way, some commentators, this is a little anecdote, have have conjectured that the reason why Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was about 30 was because as the oldest son, he was doing the dutiful thing to provide for his family until his siblings were old enough to help take over the support of the family. And that would have been necessary for him as the oldest without the father being around. Mm. And so that's one of the conjectures is that, that Joseph maybe isn't around. Well, he's, I think that's a pretty, you're right. It's not explicit, but I think it's safe to say he's, he's dead. Hmm. I, I think that's safe to say. I think it would be very hard to otherwise explain where he is. But you're right. Um, there are probably also possible theories, but I think most people agree that he's somehow has died. Um, does maybe Edwards, uh, his commentator we're looking at right now, has a different comment on that. Um, but well, nonetheless, yeah. there's his family and the offense. And uh, I think it just goes... It's something that permeates to our time today. I think when I became a believer, um, my family didn't really know what to do with my faith, to be honest. I love my parents and they love me. And I think they look back and they probably didn't even realize to what degree uh, they were kind of uncomfortable with my faith or how it came across to me. But it it was hard for them to make sense of my faith. I think I was young and they probably they looked at me like, ah, this kid is just getting becoming a religious fanatic. But the idea that we can come to our family, the people that know us, um, and and to not be received by them is must have been really, I don't know, I would imagine that would be really hard for Jesus. I don't know if it was, but for me it would be. I think for most of us, you come home, don't you want to impress the people that you've grown up, grown up with and are closest to you? But it does bring up the issue of familiarity mm-hmm. and the old proverb that goes back actually to 30 years before Christ— I forget the guy's name. It's escaping me for the minute here. But the saying that um, familiarity breeds contempt is a very old proverb that mm-hmm. was pre that pre that was pre Jesus. And um, and I think there's I think we probably have all experienced that at some level where people who know us get used to us knowing us in a certain way and have hard time mm-hmm. allowing us to to mature and grow and to embr- and to embrace changes in our life. They are cynical of it. They, um, they, it's just not who they've known. They're like, that can't be you. No, 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 I don't receive that. Mm-hmm. No way. You can't be doing that. Um, but it's the familiarity with Jesus. And I think the application for us could be, it's a warning to us as Christians who've grown up knowing Jesus for a long time, that we can get comfortable with certain of knowing Jesus in a certain way and feel threatened when aspects of Jesus that we're not familiar with present themselves. Mm-hmm. And I had alluded to that in the message. I think I talked about, I gave examples like some of us who maybe didn't grow up much with 
exposure to the supernatural side of Jesus's life. And so when we see the supernatural come up, like healings and the charismatic gifts, we might feel threatened by that mm-hmm. and automatic and take offense to it and sort of draw hasty conclusions and overgeneralize and assume it's it's something it's something that really maybe it's not just because we're not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Or I talked about justice. You bring up Jesus's care and compassion for the poor, the downtrodden, the marginalized, which is profoundly biblical, and just assume that we're that the person's a Marxist. Um, you know, uber progressive leftist person mm. and um, and to discover, hey, maybe they are more towards that side, but man, there's some aspects in which that does capture Jesus mm. <laughs> and some of his concerns. And we can just blow it off because we weren't raised with that. But yet Jesus clearly cared about the poor and had ways in which he viewed money that would not very capitalistic. <laughs> I mean, so I putting it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think that I, all great observations about his family, about proximity, and I love how you connected that to, for those of us that have grown up in the church, the danger of in many ways being inoculated, maybe an, a, a loaded term given all the debates around vaccines. Oh, that's a great but, word. Isn't yes. that the post-Christian deconstructed world that we are living in in the West, mm-hmm. the inoculated, which is so much harder to witness to than people who've never heard Jesus before at all. Yeah. Yeah. In part because the, those of us that are, have been inoculated in some ways, yeah, we're, well, we presume we know. Isn't All so there often, is to know. Yeah. Isn't that so often what the root of offense is, is that we think that we kind of have things, you know, figured out. Well, okay, can I add to that real quick? Yeah, One please. thing that was a real gift to me was when I was with InterVarsity, InterVarsity by design is interdenominational. So you're with Christians who are coming from all kinds of Christian traditions. And man, I, I just, lo- I just, I think I got a huge, a, a robust Jesus hmm. because of that experience versus the temptation with a, a denominational experience of Jesus where you've grown up in one particular stream is that you, we kind of pull and quarter Jesus. Mm. Some people get the arms, some people get the left leg, some people get the head and it's a grotesque image, but we get aspects of him. But the interdenominational experience that I got people, there were charismatics, reform, evangelical, even Catholic. I know <gasps> some people are going, what? Come on. No, How, either, what could you Orthodox? have in common with a Catholic? But there was, that having that kind of Jesus in stereo just gave mm-hmm. me a much bigger picture of Jesus. It, when I went to college, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know in high school. And I'm grateful for that. And I think we all need that. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I got that some in my own journey too. Um, in during my theological education, being exposed to yeah different strains of church across you know the last two thousand years since Christ and the different emphases that the denominations put on stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it was interesting. I remember being angry because in, lo, in a lot of ways, uh, in a naive sort of way, but angry that the version of Jesus that I had been taught or exposed to was so limited when yeah. there seemed to be so much richness. I understand that. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's part of my own mini deconstruction phase, but, uh, I lost the thread. Well, I think to go back to the offense and go back to that Jesus is so much bigger than any one Christian tradition or stream can capture. Mm-hmm. What's important maybe to, 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 to note to our listeners is that 
every one of us is in a in a stream in a tradition i uh, we are churches mm-hmm. and we have to understand that we are not representing the fullness of christ we want to think we are mm-hmm. we're not he's just it's so hard to wrap your mind around the fullness of christ i think eternity will be you won't be able to exhaust it mm-hmm. and i don't mean that in a i don't mean that globally i just Glibly, I literally, I just think literally, like we should have a posture of being constantly open to learning about him. I think it's different than heresy and things that contradict him, his mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's not always easy to discern that, but nonetheless, yeah. What's well, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but um, mystery is a threatening word to a lot of people, especially evangelicals, when we refer to the mystery of God, because we want to say, well, no, but you can, you know. It smacks of mysticism, which people immediately associate with like new age stuff and stuff that does get way really speculative and experience oriented apart, unhinged from truth. Mm -hmm. But there is so much mystery around God. Yeah. Well, they often connote it with an, okay, well, if, if God is mysterious, then how can he be trustworthy? And I love alternate definitions. Yeah, the perspicuity of scripture, for example. Right, exactly. And that you can over mysterize God where you're obscuring what is revealed truth. Totally. But then in trying to emphasize what is revealed, what truth is revealed in a world that needs absolute truth, we over-reduce it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're not able to admit, hey, it's a both and. Yes. There is revealed absolute truth, but there is more than we understand. Yes. Yeah. And that's that definition of mystery, not as the unknow- unknowability of God, but the endless knowability. Ooh. So it's, Ooh. it's the... What? Hey, Dude, just the, say the, that again. <laughs> The mystery of God, the mystery of God that confronts us um, by our own limited streams that we are raised in um, or experiences that we've had is not the unknowability of God, but the endless knowability of God. So that's that's connects to your point about yeah, that's a good way of eternity of saying, well, hey, actually, um, there are heights that we have yet to climb to and there are depths that we have yet to dive to with regard to the depths of God's love and his character, his glory, wonder. And that's part of what we'll spend eternity doing and enjoying. I bet there's a total inverse proportional relationship to offense and wonder. Oh, come explain. Well, you know, where one is increasing, one is decreasing, that they're mutually exclusive. And mm. the presence and measure of one is indicative of the absence of the other, right? Yes. So I think you get to a place where familiarity is looking for safety and control and predictability. And the mm-hmm. brain needs that. Yep. You can't be constantly questioning whether or not the couch is going to hold you up or not. You can't constantly be wondering if when you go home, the door, if your family is going to be there. We need some measure of predictability, but where that becomes a problem is where we apply that to God in a way that um, doesn't allow us to continue to learn more about him. And that reduces wonder. Mm -hmm. And I think wonder is the ability to engage with God in that part that is um, stretching the boundaries of what we thought we already knew about him. Mm -hmm. I think there is a certain discomfort that comes with allowing wonder into our life because it means Whoa, I didn't, I guess what amazement is, if you see it coming and it's totally predictable, you're not amazed. Yeah. You're amazed precisely because it's a surprise. Mm. Something happened, something was revealed that you didn't 
anticipate. Oh, this would have been good on Sunday. Oh, anyway. <laughs> but we're doing it now. And yeah, we're having we're fun now. But at any rate, I just... I, one thing I love about Mark's leadership was through C.S. Lewis constantly reminding us of the Christian duty to wonder. Mm-hmm. It, it's a funny way to put it, but, you know, we're, we call to re- preserve the wonder. But if we become too afraid and too, as he, persnickety and in need to control mm-hmm. uh, and re- overly reduce things about God so that it's, like, manageable and we've got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. Um. And then I think we lose that wonder. Absolutely. Which we've been, curiosity has been a theme that has come up time and time again on this podcast and in Mark, that the definition in many ways of, of faith is the, okay, are your, is your response to Jesus one of curiosity or one of cynicism? And we see that again in, in this text, the amazement there's, you know, Jesus is amazed in this text and, <laughs> Jesus uh, is and so are his brothers and sisters and, you know, the, the, the tribe he grew up around They're they're amazed by his teachings. Um, but then that gives away to, that gives way to cynicism rather than giving way to wonder. That's right. Yeah, and you know how this connects with the scent part? Let's talk about the scent for a minute. Yes, please. Uh, the scent, that I, again, some of the aspect I didn't get to cover is the way is what they're sent to do. Wait. I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. There's there's actually a, a question I really wanted to ask okay. you before we get to scentness, because it, I think it would be one that people would, I mean, would have reading this. We talked about the amazement. We talked about familiarity, but what do we make of the fact that Jesus is amazed and then he can't do any miracles except lay his well, hands on yeah, a few sick yeah. people and heal them? And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Water so, being spilled on that. Yeah. A lot I've, got of, my, I've got my theory. Okay, great. Hit us with your theory. There's a lot of different takes on it. I won't review them all. You can maybe throw a couple in, but I don't take that as literal, to be frank. I don't take that as he literally, his power is literally like blocked. Bound. I think it's more um, like, let's look at Legion, for example. He heals that man, and when the town comes, they ask him to leave, and he leaves. So we could argue that Jesus could do no more there. Not because he didn't have the power to do it. It was somehow the laws of spiritual power were blocked, per se, but rather uh, he was, he won't force it there. And Respecting I th- their boundary. Yeah, I think in a way he was... Uh, I don't know what, what term you want to use, but he was okay. He's, he he withdrew himself intentionally, mm-hmm. and and I think that's why God works through faith because faith is not a like a mood. It's it's a relational term. It's trust, right? It's about trust. Do you mm-hmm. trust me? And if you don't trust me, I'm not going to force this. That's what the enemy does. The enemy doesn't use trust. The enemy for enforces him, himself on people, and that's what we see the works of the enemy doing. But I think Jesus here. Um, was withdrawing himself because only a few people were trusted him to receive him into their life, the depth that was needed for him to do the healing that he need, mm-hmm. that he wants to do for all of us. And so I think um, I think it's it's not an uncomfortable thing for us to acknowledge, but it's it, you have to name it, and that is. One of the reasons, we talked about this, I think, last week, one of the reasons why we don't see certain expressions of Jesus's spirit and ministry at work among us is 
at times because of that cynicism, that lack of trust. We we haven't um, haven't been willing to trust him enough to to allow Jesus to bring that ministry into our life. And I think that is one of the reasons, not the only. So if we don't see healing in our life, it's not always just because of that, but that is one of the legitimate biblical reasons. And we should pause and ask ourselves, Lord, am I not seeing this in my life or through my prayers because I am struggling to trust you here? Mm-hmm. It's, in other words, it's not an indictment. Oh, you don't have enough faith, so you don't get the reward. Like some kind of performance thing. That's what I'm trying to get away from. I think it's more, if you don't trust Jesus, then you're not going to receive him close enough, deep enough to do the work that he would otherwise do, because he will not force his work on our life. Because God is, he is irreducibly relational. And he will not violate those, those relational values that he carries because it would be to violate himself. Yeah, I think that that's a, I mean, ah, shucks. I wish we disagreed more. We could have had a a, a great debate, but I think that I genuinely agree. With, <laughs> I genuinely agree with your interpretation there. Uh, I think there's all sorts of fun things that we could spend our time unpacking around there. Cause like you said, there has been a lot of ink spilt, you know, like, um, like, is there, is there a spiritual component there? Is there, you know, is there a theology of place or a spirit of a place that, um, like, physical landscape that's kind of impacted by the people populating there that can make, um, you know, make a, a physical space open towards health and healing, uh, faith, wonder, or m- more predisposed? Like, I'm just listening. I would say yes to all that and say that could, would be the byproduct of this core issue. Yeah. I just think it, I always want to see faith dynamics, spiritual dynamics through the prism of relationship mm-hmm. and make that the, the center and the, everything else kind of oriented around it. And so I think those things can certainly result, but as a byproduct of the very core is our relation with God, because all of life is relational and creation is relational. Mm-hmm. And so our relationship to God certainly has impact on uh, our relationship to our environment, to our to nature, to the, to the earth, to the physical matter of it all, and to the spiritual dynamics at play. Mm-hmm. I think that's all true as well. All right. Well, we solved it. Yeah, there we go. Done. We can, we can move on. <laughs> we can move on to the sentness. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So you talked about sentness and you talked about giftedness. And I know like our time is dwindling. Um, so what are the, what are some of the most important things when, we talk about the sentness. We have this picture of Jesus after he's been, in a sense, rebuked by his his original community and his family, and he he realizes that it's an inhospitable place to him to do effective ministry. That, like you said, they're they've kind of relationally or closed minded. There's a little bit of a groupthink that seems to just preclude the possibility yep. of. Um, of Jesus and the disciples being received warmly. And so we see him move on to teaching um, to the other surrounding villages and then eventually to sending out the disciples and uh, in pairs to go out and do their thing. And this is, this connects us with that gear shift that we named at the, towards the beginning of our conversation about the disciples being kind of pushed out of the nest in, in some ways, rough around the edges 
not perhaps um, super well equipped in certain ways. So what is it that you want us to understand about the importance of the disciples being sent? Well, when they're sent, they're sent with a holistic salvation agenda. And I think it's, um, I think in the evangelical world, the emphasis is generally on proclamation on what we do with our words. And look, that's clearly an important part of it. Um, I would, I just wish I could have expanded on the holistic nature of it. And that is that Jesus sent them out to reveal um, the good news through their words. So preach, uh, but also through their prayers. And I think that's where we see the, you know, prayer is about the access point for human beings to spiritual power. I think that power and authority over unclean spirits and over um, the spiritual realm, but then also to heal. And yes, spiritually, they did that through spiritual power, but they were caring about their bodies. Hmm. They were ministering to people in this holistic way. And I think that's really important to see. Because I think healing, that when Jesus sent them out in this passage, it was to heal their bodies. But I think in time, as the Christian movement um, progressed, it started to see uh, an expansion of that healing ministry to heal people physically, to heal people uh, emotionally, to heal people relationally. Uh, what we do with the men's and women's skills, with the marriage, that's relational healing. That's inner, that's a. Uh, uh, healing of the mind and, the, and our relationship to our emotions. But then there's also societal healing, healing at a social level, social level, like where we're engaging with dynamics that are dividing people along lines of hostility, people between class, race, gender, these sort of traditional fault lines of division. Mm. Uh, Jesus was ad- addressed those. We can see these in different gospels, like Jesus reaching out to a Samaritan woman Jesus um, uh, is going to do that with a Syrophoenician woman, a woman who is not even Jewish, right? He's going to do that. He's going to reach across those boundary lines. And he's going to lead Peter to do it in Acts, to reach out to Cornelius. So it's holistic. It's, 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 and it's revealing Jesus in word, deed, and power. Mm-hmm. That goes back to the offense. So what I mean by that is, I think that evangelicals are very comfortable with revealing Jesus with our words. We're going to proclaim the gospel. But some evangelicals... Um, can be uncomfortable with the supernatural side and feel that that is getting away from core Christianity, that that was back then, but no longer now. Others can be uncomfortable with the healing side and that that would involve engaging with social healing. And I think that's a part of Jesus's work. And I think uh, we get into justice and let's use the word social justice, but I'm afraid people will use that and, confuse it with other interpretations of it and culture that are not biblical. So if you can, as the listener, just know I'm not going there, pinning one group against the other. Um, not a stumbling block. Yeah. Don't take the bait. Yeah, don't take the bait. It's not now let's knock you down to elevate them up and put you in your place. You just don't see Jesus doing that. That's yeah. just not Jesus' way. But nonetheless, talk about justice and, and, and a healthy biblical social activism gets underdeveloped in our culture because we are overreacting to past mistakes. Yeah. There have been times of social gospelizing where people kicked out the gospel proclamation and just said, we just need to do good deeds. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the other extreme. Yeah. But we don't, we've over-rotated sometimes to go back and forth like a pendulum. 
that can draw offense. To go back to the offense factor. And so we go, well, just play it safe and just preach Jesus and just tell them to go into hell if they don't turn and burn. Uh, whatever. You know, it's just over reductionistic. Mm-hmm. When Jesus is sending them out to do all that, I think that's I think that's when revival happens. And that's what I see in renewal movements throughout mm-hmm. history. When the fullness of Jesus's ministry is embraced and not just one aspect of it. In a lot of revival movements, you see things happening socially. I could give so many examples, things happening supernaturally uh, and things happening, um, you know, inner, like between people and their personal relationship with God and repenting of sin. And you see the whole thing. That's a revival at 10.0. That's when you get a fully mature movement of God. But we are so quick to be offended. The enemy has gotten us to where you just mentioned justice and people, oh my gosh, you're just this. And then, mm-hmm. oh. It just makes it so hard. Yeah, totally. It does. Um, so what do you make about the... They were also sent out in a very specifically limited way by Jesus. That's right. I asked the question, didn't I? Uh-huh. Were you there? Did you hear that? I put the question out to the crowd. And I said, hey, talk about this. So let me turn it to you, Joseph. What do you think, bro? Why do you think Jesus does that? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um. Well... I think two things. Um, the first is that he sends them out in a vulnerable way because that mirrors the vulnerability that he embodied when he was incarnated. You know, you have the, the God of the universe becoming flesh and blood. Well, who's, that's good. I wouldn't have thought of that. So, <laughs> boom. Who is, uh, who's yeah, taken on our fallibility, our, our weakness, our, exposure to the elements, you know, and the capacity to suffer and to die, which he does. And that is just, that is inherent. If we're called to be like Christ, we can't go out armored up, you know, um, in, in a very real way, you know, they're given things that they need, you know, uh, they've, they've got the four specific items that he says that they can, they can take with him. But yeah, that vulnerability that they get sent out in it, models his vulnerability, but it also um, creates an opportunity for the, the communities that they're being sent to, to meet the needs that they have. So, I mean, we could spend a fair amount of time talking about the hospitality codes in the ancient Near East, which is just something that w- would be fun to do at some point a little bit more in depth, because it's something that really, especially especially here on, on the West Coast, uh, in many ways, we oftentimes have a thin conception of hospitality and just how important that plays that role plays in the early church and also during Jesus's time. We obviously won't go into that uh, super in depth. You know, one thing that I thought that was really interesting that Edwards mentions in his commentary that I'd never heard before was drawing the parallel between those four items that the disciples are are commanded to take and no more are the exact same four items that the Israelites are commanded to grab with them when they're leaving Egypt in Exodus 12 verse one. And so oh, there's, that's this, good. there's this parallel bes- between saying, like you'd mentioned, Hey, there's a gear shift that's happening here. Um, he's invoking Mark's invoking Exodus as this groundbreaking epoch changing, uh, transition in the life of is- Israel and the life of the people of God, where they're being liberated from their old way of being and what they were used to and dependent upon, um, in their slavery to Egypt and they're being invited out into this crazy new experience in wilderness where they're going wow. to depend on God in new ways that, you know, 
that the disciples need to depend on Christ for. They need to, are they really going to trust the, the authority that he's delegated to them to, to cast out demons, to heal people, you know, and to, and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. I mean, it's a, it's game changing stuff, man. That's good. So, uh, vulnerability, um, or, you know, humility, uh, interdependence, uh, slash, uh, mutuality. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and dependence on God. Mm Mm-hmm. The interdependence part, the mutuality, is, is they're depending on each other and yes. those who are hosting them and being hospitable to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it does communicate the opposite of the air in which we are, you know, we, we, we all hate it when people come with an air of superiority to us. But when you come as a recipient receiving hospitality, you, you come in a more mutual posture of giving and receiving. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's beautiful. That's great. Gosh, I love that. Well, did you, that the Exodus part is that? Uh, is that? A, did you get that from Edwards? Dude, I think it was a it was a footnote uh, in Edwards. Yeah. Okay, Edwards, guys, tell them who Edwards Edwards uh, so, is. So uh, James Edwards, he was a professor of mine um, at Whitworth University, where I did my undergrad in theology, and he is a noted Markan scholar, and he authored a commentary on Mark for the Pillar Commentary series. There you go. Yeah. So okay. great commentary. We both love it. Yeah. Um, I had loaned mine out, so I didn't have that at my disposal <gasps> when I was preparing for this last week. Oh, but, uh, my dog. Well, I've always got my copy, so if you just need to text me, dude, I'll let <laughs> now it I've to you. It. Now <laughs> I've got it. But he's so sharp. He's got such great insight. Anyways, I love that, and I think that's great. I if I, I, I think that's a great way to kind of capture what they're doing, and I think the temptation is always to depend on ourselves mm-hmm. and not on God, and I think Jesus is giving them a real a strong lesson in teaching them how to depend on him. I don't think Jesus is opposed to us having more than three shirts in our closet. But I think the point here is that at this early stage of their of their obedience, and he's trying to really make sure they, they depend on him Mm -hmm. for what they need and to learn to go in a posture of humility to those that are sent. Mm -hmm. So I think you said it this weekend too, to those of us that oftentimes we use as an excuse, the fact that I don't feel qualified, I'm not ready yet. You know, I don't have, I didn't go to seminary. I, I'm a new Christian. I can't, I couldn't possibly, you know, fill in the blank. You kind of talked about this. This is a great example of being like, well, hey, no, all you need in lots of ways um, is, is the faith and the trust to, to move towards people with the good news of who Jesus is and, and to minister to them, right? You don't have to have, you don't have to have an MDiv to see a sick or a needy person and to ask if you can minister to them by hearing, hearing their griefs, their heartbreak, their sorrow, and then praying with them. Right. Right. It, Let's close with a story. My mother-in-law, there's a story about my mother-in-law. There was a, there was a shooting on her street. A gunman had entered uh, her neighbor, a neighbor's home. Not my mother-in-law street, but she was at her daughter's house or my, you know, my sister-in-law's house. So she comes out and there's all these cop cars and whatnot. And my sister's telling my sister in law is telling her mother, "You just need to just get in your car and don't go over there. Just leave and go home. Don't get in the mix of it." But she walks over and just sees the woman who lived in the house, the house in which the uh, the perpetrator went into with the gun. Mm. She was on the curb, just out there crying, and no, everyone was dealing with all this chaos, but this woman was sitting there alone. 
my mother-in-law just walks right into the scene. It's like, I don't know. Just imagine tons of cops and, you know, the fire truck and all kinds of stuff. And she walks and just sits next to the woman. Just did exactly what you said. I mean, is she a police officer? No. Does she have a gun? No. Does she have a, whatever. Does she know CPR? No. But she just sits there and she goes, what happened? Are you okay? Woman tells her what happened. She just listens. I'm so sorry. And then can I pray for you? Just prays for her. And the woman just thanked her, tears in her eyes. Just wow. I just think we underestimate what you just said, this power of just simply, as you put it, to turn towards one another and to approach one another with the good news of Jesus, with our words, our actions, and our prayers. And not feel like we've got to be some scholar, have all the answers, but to just take what we have and bring it and allow God as we'll see this next weekend, to multiply the impact that we can't on our own produce. But to trust him and to trust that he's with us to go into those moments. So, well said, my friend. Well, that's a story to end on. Yeah. Yeah. But Ryan, thanks again for another conversation. And we'll look forward to, uh, to the next time, the next Monday. Yes, the feeding of the 5,000 and the calming of the storm. And the walking on the water. He, Boring. He it, he's like, oh, dude, I just calmed the storm last time. Let's do it with some panache. Hey, I just walk and then do it. It's like, gosh, Jesus outdoing himself. <laughs> Having fun, surfing Jesus. Dude, surfer Jesus. <laughs> oh, man. I'll see you next week. All right, man. see you next week. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. For more information about the series or our church, you can visit northcoastcalvarychapel.org. We also still have some copies of a special coffee table quality journal that we designed and put together to accompany this series in the Gospel of Mark. This whole podcast is a resource of North Coast Calvary Chapel. It's produced and directed by Joseph Carlson. The editing has been done by Nate King, and the music is by the one and only Brian McMaster. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.